28. Talking about the Gentiles and their exercising dominion in administration. They that are great ex exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant, even as the Son of Man came, not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. We look at the example of the Lord Jesus Christ and the exhortation of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning in this passage. He sets himself up. He's doing the speaking, even as the Son of Man came. Not to receive ministry, but to give ministry. And we need to define that term because it suffers a bit in definition. Anywhere in Scripture or nowhere in Scripture is the word minister or ministry used to describe a profession or a professional, not a clergyman. You will not find it anywhere in Scripture defining an individual's life. But it is something that, that demonstrates to us what is the capacity of all. Jesus is holding it out as an admonition and an exhortation to every one of us. Not a select few who have finished a particular kind of discipline or training, but every one of us as servants of God. Wherever you find the word minister or ministry, it has to do with our gifts and using them to the glory and honor of the Lord. So I need to have you see that to begin this thought today. That we're not talking about uh, a, a clergy versus laity. We're talking about people who know God and will serve the Lord, each of us in the uniqueness of the gifts that God has supplied to us, discovering and developing, using those gifts in the name of Jesus Christ. And indeed, there will never be success for the church to the degree that God's desire is until every part of the body supplies what is lacking without it. So I need to see myself and all of us need to see ourselves in the role of ministry today. I feel like that is a redefining of God for this fellowship. Not just for this service, but for services to come. I feel like the Lord is directing our attention in the scriptures to that dimension where every one of us involved in ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ. That not a distance between pulpit and pew, but all of us seeing ourselves equally involved in the work of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Different in function, but indeed the same in expectation. But I believe that the role that God defines for pastoral staff is found in Ephesians chapter 4. The fivefold gifts of ministry are given for the equipping of the saints to do works of ministry. And so we kind of, at times, lose sight of the fact that, that those who, who come into full-time situations are there to equip saints so that they can do acts of service. They can do works of ministry. 
And so with that context, we look at the scriptures again this morning to have the Holy Spirit define in us and for us what he has to say in reference to ministry. Jesus, in the last part of that last verse, says, and to give his life a ransom for many. In the word ransom comes a truth that the Holy Spirit has made alive to us today. When you ransom someone, they have been taken captive and being held there as hostage. Jesus, in the work of the cross, provide for us redemption, ransom. He paid that price. What we celebrate here this morning at this table is indeed the fulfillment of that statement that he makes about himself. He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. That was the only price that was sufficient for that ransom. The Bible is very clear. It says, for you are not bought with silver and gold, not with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no earthly treasure that was adequate to redeem us. There's only one commodity that had sufficient collateral to redeem and ransom my soul, and that was the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave his life a ransom for many. So we see Jesus in this metaphor as his life representing the collateral necessary or the currency to buy us from our indebtedness and to bring us into eternal life. It's not just true of Jesus, but that's the terminology that the Apostle Paul used when he was writing to the Corinthian church. And so if you'll turn to chapter 12 of the book of 2 Corinthians, he makes a very significant statement to us with the same metaphor. Verse 15, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He said, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. He said, I will most gladly. I think that's important. He did not say, I grudgingly, or I feel out of duty or obligation, I have to do this. It's my responsibility, and so I will fulfill that. But he is identifying the motivation of his heart, and he said, I do this with rejoicing. I do this with gladness, I very gladly and willingly spend and be spent for you. Looking at his life the same way the Lord did and giving his life a ransom for us, he was looking at his life as the currency, as the collateral that could be invested. You know, the great thing about this is that every one of us stand on equal ground. All of us are deposited the same amount no matter who we are, no matter what age we are, every one of us receive exactly the same amount to invest. All of us will have 1,440 minutes today. Each one of us will have 60 seconds, 60 minutes, 24 hours, 7 days this week, 365 days this year. Everyone is, is proportioned out an equal measure of life to invest. The question that we have before us, what do we value enough to spend our time 
and invest our lives to receive. Just like every other transaction you're used to doing throughout the course of your everyday life, you open your wallet and you look at a particular item and you say, yes, that's worth the investment. And you take the collateral from your wallet and you lay it on the counter and you say, yes, I will purchase that item. I'm willing to surrender the value of what I possess because I, I value and treasure that. I feel like that's worth the investment. And you make the investment to receive and so it is with our lives. What is it that you are getting back on the investment you're making with your time? You can spend your time anyway. You can spend your time in front of the TV. You can spend your time playing with toys. You can spend your time in bed. <laughs> you can spend your time, and in fact, that is the terminology we use, is it not? We spend our lives, we spend our time. What is it that we are receiving back on the investment that we are making? And we need to really think in terms of the most valuable thing we possess. Much more valuable than what you would pull out of your wallet or what you have in the bank. Much more valuable than any treasure that we possess. Our very lives is the highest possible collateral we have. Nothing is more precious than that. What are you receiving back, return on investment, by the spending of your life? And today you will spend some this afternoon, and you're spending some right now in the house of God. You're spend, you'll spend some tomorrow. The next day you will spend your life, and you need to evaluate what am I receiving return on investment? Is what I am receiving back worth what I am investing? The Apostle Paul looked at himself and said, I most gladly and willingly spend and be spent for you. Part of what we're talking about is on the wall. It's a very familiar verse of Scripture. Jesus said, how can a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Very clearly, weighing the worth of your soul against the wealth of the world. And he's saying, it's a bad deal. If you sell out your soul for the world, even for all of its wealth, you've, you're the loser. It's not worth the investment. It's simply not worth the investment of time, no matter how few decades you have. Wait against eternity, that's a bad deal. But what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? I don't have the time to do it this morning, but some of you might have this little book by Max Lucado. It's entitled when God whispers your name and he has a chapter in there what's your price and he gives the analogy of a game show host and ten million dollars that's available uh, if you will just do one of these things and uh, that's enough you have to buy the book <laughs> what's your price and there it was you know kill a stranger uh, become a prostitute for a week, uh, turn your back on your family. And what he was saying was, some of us do it for a lot less than $10 million. The, the game show was hypothetical, but the questions are still the same. What is your price? What do you value? And what do you invest your life? Return on investment. What will you give in exchange for your soul? Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many. No wonder we celebrate it again and again at this table. 
In the giving of his life, it was the collateral by which I was purchased and the redemption of my soul was satisfied before God. And every one of us, every one of us have the same amount to invest and every one of us will stand before God one day and give an account of the stewardship of the investment of our life, which we call time. We spend our time. We can spend it one way or another, but we will be investing our lives somehow today, tomorrow, the next day, we need to ask ourselves, am I getting good return on investment? What is it that I'm purchasing with the spending of myself and my effort? Now, in context of value possessed, there's a verse of scripture in John chapter 15, I think it's verse 5, in the parable of the vine and the branches. Part of that one verse Jesus says, for without me you can do nothing. So the value apart from Jesus of any life, no matter what the bank tells you, the value of any life apart from Jesus Christ is zero. Apart from me you can do nothing. So this could represent our training. This could represent our experience. This could represent our financial capacity. This could represent uh, our, our ingenuity, our ability. All of these things without Jesus Christ can make not one addition eternally. You might make some mark for time, but as far as what really matters forever, apart from Jesus Christ, you can do nothing. The value of your life to God apart from Jesus Christ, has no value eternally. You might have some value to society for time and space, but apart from him, you can do nothing. And you could add all of the other things that I have not mentioned, and all of them added together amount to the same thing. Zero. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, let's let Jesus Christ represent number one. How many agree that the Lord is number one? And he adds value to our life. When Jesus Christ comes into my heart, he adds eternal value to me. When I possess that eternal gift of God, eternal life, Jesus Christ becomes my Savior. Now I am worth something eternally. I have something that I can share with others that will transform their lives and add a dimension of eternity to them. Now, if he just is added to my life as an adjunct to everything else I do. I have Christ, but how much buying power do I have? How much really can I re have return on investment? I have a, a dollar's worth, and I don't depreciate that, that dollar. It can do something. But I come to the, to the house of God and I hear someone say that Jesus wants to be more than your Savior. He can become the Lord of your life. And so I come to the altar and I say, Lord, I, I thank you for saving me, but more than that, now I want you to become more in my life. I have increased my worth to God by tenfold. Now instead of just the capacity of one dollar, I have moved just one notch and I have, I have magnified it tenfold. Each time I move it up, I've magnified it a hundredfold. I've magnified it a thousandfold. And when I make Jesus Christ Lord of my life, I become more valuable. Where you place Christ in your life determines your ability and your value 
as collateral to win the lost for Jesus Christ. I believe he needs to be the head and not the tail. I believe that the Lord needs to be at the head of our lives and giving him the first fruits of our day and the first fruits of our income and making him the Lord of our lives. The more we have Jesus Christ number one in our lives, the more we have the ability to bless and to make an eternal difference to those around us. If I see myself and my life as the collateral, like Jesus said, I gave my life and it was enough to ransom the world. Paul said, I'm willing to spend and be spent. He saw his life as, as the collateral that God could use to build the kingdom. And I believe that that's true for every one of us. We have a life to give. We have a life to spend. And we will spend that life somehow. And I think to the degree we give the Lord the place that he deserves in our lives, the greater our value and the greater asset we can be to the kingdom of God. And it's really our choice where we want to put the Lord in our life. And everybody that was quiet said, it is our choice what place we decide to put the Lord in our lives. To the degree we move him closer and closer to sovereign Lord, the more God can take us and use us for his glory and honor. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, please. I think we need to see that there is a sweeping transition and transformation. And there's a great surge of uplift from Old Testament to New Testament. And I need to point that out to you because that all the terminology used in this chapter is lifted from Old Testament. It's going to talk about the Old Testament temple. It's going to talk about Old Testament priesthood. It's going to talk about the Old Testament uh, citizenship of Israel, the nation of Israel. And, and it's really identifying from Old Testament God's covenant with and fulfillment to a people in the Old Testament and totally contrasting it now to New Testament experience. He gives six words, word pictures for us in the passage that, that helps us to, to get a grasp of this. Beginning at the first verse, the, the word is good. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile, hypocrisy and envy and evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you might grow thereby. If so be that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also are lively stones, that's number one, built up to a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Number two, wherefore also you are contained in the scriptures, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious. He that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious, but unto them that are disobedient, a stone which the, the builders disallowed, the same now has become the head of the corner, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense to them that stumble at the word, being disobedient, where also, unto also they were appointed. But ye also are chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, and that 
translated from King James into NIV, a people of God's own possession. Those people belonging to God. I think that's a powerful statement. That is perhaps the best statement on stewardship I can find anywhere in the New Testament. You are a people of God's own possession. I don't have to spend much time convincing you this morning that you belong to God. You belong to God. You belong to God. Don't you know, he said, you are bought with a price, not of corruptible things, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you are a people of God's own possession. And we need to appreciate the fact this morning that as coins in his hands, he has the right to spend us as he wills. The coin does not have choice. The coin is in the master's hand to be used as he chooses to use us. And as we examine this passage of scripture again this morning we appreciate the fact that when Jesus was standing with his adversaries and they came with a seemingly impossible question is it right to pay tax to Caesar and they thought surely if he says yes it's the right thing to do he's got trouble with the Jewish elders because they felt it was it was not proper for them to do this if he said no, it's not right to pay tax to Caesar. He's in trouble with Caesar. So no matter which direction he would go, his answer was going to be wrong with someone. But he took a coin from his pocket and held it up and said, whose inscription is on this coin? And the answer was Caesar's. His response then, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and give to God that which belongs to God. The reason for the money changers to be at the the, the gate of the temple was that it was against the law to offer to God that which had the inscription of some other sovereign on it. So when they came into the temple, they surrendered their Roman coins and received instead Hebrew coins so they could buy the offerings and offer to God the sacrifices that were, were worthy to receive. The money changers took that which had the inscription of Caesar on it and traded it for that which had no inscription. And so he said, take what belongs to Caesar and give that to him, but take what belongs to God and give to him. We realize that in Genesis chapter 2, God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. We were created in the image of God. That which bears his image ought to be returned back to him. Give to God what bears his image. All things are working together for good now that sin has marred and destroyed the image of God. It is restored and reclaimed by redemption. And he is working the image of God. We need to give back to God what belongs to him. The image of God has been stamped on us. We belong to him. Offer back to God your body, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable, which is your reasonable service. Your life in his hands becomes the currency that God can invest to build the work of the kingdom and to do the works of the kingdom. He said, you are living stones that make up a new temple. 
the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, God only lived in one place, one geographical location. If you're going to meet with God, you had to go where the temple was erected. And there was one place called the Holy of Holies. That place alone was where the Shekinah glory of God abode. So if you're going to find the presence of God, you had to get to that one geographical location. There was no manifestation of God's presence anywhere else but that one place. And even if you did arrive there, you'd have to stand outside because only one man once a year could enter that Holy of Holies and walk into the very presence of, of the living God. That was the old covenant. What Peter is saying, now you are living stones that make up a new temple of God. He said, don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the naos of God, the very same word used to describe the Holy of Holies. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You don't have to go to any geographical location anymore to discover where the presence of God is. Wherever you are, God is because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He indwells you. And in the middle of the night when you can't get out or you're anywhere else, you're in a hospital bed, God's there because he indwells your body. It becomes the very naos of the presence of the living God. The Shekinah glory of God dwells within us. Hallelujah. He lifts us out of the Old Testament into a new freedom and liberty and blessing that we can enjoy. Wherever we are, he is because we are living stones made up into a temple. He said, now you be careful how you live because if you defile that temple, he'll destroy you. Don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives within you? And if you defile that temple, he'll destroy you. That is an important feature. He said, be holy for I am holy. It is the holy of holies. God's presence lives within us. We need to be reminded of the blessing that we enjoy as being a part of a new covenant place. A royal priesthood. Martin Luther did us a great, great service in the Reformation. There are three tremendous truths that had, had need to be resurrected. The, the number one was the authority of Scripture. And he brought back to the fore that the, the Word of God was the only rule of faith and practice and we needed to set aside men's thoughts and men's opinions and men's traditions and come back to stand on Bible ground. And let that be the authority by which we governed our lives. That was a tremendous blessing. A very great need in the body of Christ. The second truth that he brought alive to us was the just shall live by faith. As contrary to our being able to enjoy eternal life by our works or efforts, he had tried. He had buffeted and beaten his body. He had flagellated himself. He had, he had bruised himself and caused the blood to flow. He had crawled up steps. He had done everything. And the same old sin problems persisted. There was no victory in his life. He knew he could not achieve pleasing God by his own efforts. And the Holy Spirit broke open and brought to light the truth. The just shall live by faith. It is not by works of righteousness that I have done, but by his grace through faith I'm saved. That's a tremendous truth. The third thing that he brought is not as widely understood or experienced by the church, and that was the priesthood of the believer. He taught right out of this passage that indeed and in fact all of us, he wanted to do away with 
the difference between priests and people. He wanted everybody to be called priests. And he was right. Because the point of this message is this morning, ye also are holy priests of God. In the Old Testament, there was only a tribe of Levi that qualified to be the priests of the Lord. And there was only a restricted few of them that could become high priests and offer the sacrifice within the veil. But now, in the New Testament, just like you don't have to go to a certain place to experience the presence, you also are a royal and a holy priesthood that you can offer sacrifices. You can have direct access to God. Hallelujah! That's tremendous! I can have direct, immediate access to God. And you are a priest this morning. And we need to dissolve the difference between clergy and laity and say somehow, in this place today, all of us are ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to understand that it is not a designation of profession, it is indeed a common experience expected of every one of us that we are to be ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ in every sense of the word. It's not a matter of saying, well, that's his job. We give him a check to do that. That's not what the Bible says. The success of the church will never, ever be what God needs it to be unless every one of us become involved in the ministry. And I feel that deeply in my soul. And that's the... That's the the emphasis and definition that I feel that he wants us to bring to this body that every one of us in some way discover and develop the gift that he's given and invest that in the kingdom of God, the works of ministry. And it is my job to help you discover that and to equip you to do works of ministry. And that's exactly what I feel the Holy Spirit would design for us to do as we are a lively stone to make up a spiritual house, a temple of God. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. Hallelujah. In the Old Testament, there was one nation. A lot of nations nation, uh, named in the Bible, one nation that were identified as the people of God. One nation. Now, he said, Ye are, he's writing to five different provinces, ye are a holy nation. I don't care where you travel this morning, across the state, across the states, into other countries, anyone who has Jesus Christ in their heart has one sovereign over that kingdom, that nation. His name is Jesus. Doesn't matter. There have been Sundays when after the second service, this this auditorium empties and the Koreans come in. Pastor Lee was away and he's asked me to do his services and I've spoken through an interpreter and we sing the same songs. I preach from the same scriptures. We worship the same Lord because we are a nation. Come from different parts of the globe, but we are one holy nation. Hallelujah. I've gone to Costa Rica and through an interpreter spoke to the Spanish people there. And we worship the same Lord, sang the same songs, examined the same scriptures, and had Jesus Christ sovereign over one holy nation. Hallelujah. I've been to Africa and stood and talked to those men through an interpreter. And, and they too worship the same Jesus no matter where you go. 
you can't understand the language but there's a commonality of spirit that we can relate to hallelujah and we are a one holy nation under the rulership and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ that wasn't true in the Old Testament it's true in the New Testament what am I saying all this for we have been lifted by God out of the old covenant into a brand new dimension in the new in the new covenant different kind of temple experience different